Well, tonight we are going to be in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, and we'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. You find our passage uh, beginning at the bottom right corner of page 485 of the Pew Bible. We'll read the entire psalm. I'll bring it up here on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. This is a psalm of Asaph, we are told at the beginning. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them on slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. That psalm is one that kind of takes you on a journey. And this psalm, this particular psalm, actually has uh, two uh, distinctions uh, to it. First, it is uh, the beginning of the third book of Psalms. There are five books in the book of Psalms, and this is how the, uh, those who organized uh, the book of Psalms chose to begin their third book. We can only ponder as to why they wanted to lead with this particular psalm. But secondly, we are told that this psalm is a psalm of Asaph. 
Well, who is Asaph? Asaph is one of those biblical names that you get used to hearing in church, but you never quite place him. You don't really know where he goes. He's not one of the real famous guys, but you've, you've heard of Asaph. Well, Asaph was a Levite who was appointed by David for worship in the tabernacle. He was uh, the lead singer, as it were, and as such, it makes sense that he, as the lead singer of God's people, would write some songs. And the Lord saw fit to use the words of Asaph by grace and the inspiration of the Spirit to bless us tonight with Psalm 73. And Asaph has a story to tell us. It's not about something he did, but it's about something he wrestled with, something he struggled with. He starts with the truth that God is good to his people. God is good to those who love him. But Asaph confesses that something went wrong in his heart. He he says that his feet almost stumbled and slipped from the path because he became envious. Envious of the wicked. Envious of their worldly prosperity. And we're often tempted not only to ask, you know, why do the wicked, you know, prosper while the righteous suffer? You know, that's, that's a common question, even in the Psalms. But we are even further tempted, perhaps more quietly, more reservedly, more when the privacy of our own thoughts to ask, is godliness really worth it? Is it worth it to be godly, to seek it, to train yourself for it? as Paul commands us to do? Or should we just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die? Asaph is telling here about a time where he truly began to doubt God's goodness in the face of the struggles of the righteous and the apparent ease that the wicked have in this life. He shares his experience with us because he knows that we face similar temptations in every generation. And so tonight, first, we're going to consider the twisted lie of the world that envy presents to us. And then we will see the world as it really is, according to God. So first, let's take a look at the twisted view of the world presented by envy in Asaph's mind and heart. And there's, and and essentially, there's, there's this big point that he comes with, and it really bothers him, is just that You know, prosperity and vitality always for the wicked. That seems to be the principle of the world, is what Asaph says. And this is not the truth of the world, but this is how he saw it. The wicked seemed like they had no pangs, that is, pain. They had no hardships until they died. He says they didn't experience trouble like everyone else. It's like they got a pass in life, no matter what they did. No matter what evil they would commit, they didn't suffer for it. They didn't pay consequences for it. Somehow they were even to escape the the suffering of mankind. They seem to live in a whole different existence. As such, they're they're puffed up, but they don't need to hide it, because why should they? They just have nothing but success. It's just nothing but up for the wicked in this life. And so they wear pride like a necklace, showing it off to everybody. Who cares? Even violence is like clothing to them. They don't mind. And then in verse 7, he brings the focus to their faces, their, their eyes and their mouths. Now, he already said that their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, that's, that's kind of cattle language. Uh, but, but in a world where food is hard to come by, it was hard to be fat. It was hard to be overweight. 
And so, and so, uh, and so he says that they are so overweight, they are so inundated with excess that that they basically can't see because the fat has enclosed their eyes. Their eyes may be swollen shut, but their mouths are quite busy, scoffing and speaking with malice, threatening violence and uttering blasphemies against God. That's what he means by to set your tongue against heaven while it struts upon the earth. It's bragging to everyone else and then speaking against the Lord. They question God's knowledge of their deeds, and thus they believe that God is incapable of holding them to account. Because they basically say, hey, what God doesn't know won't hurt him. And he doesn't know what I'm doing. He sums this up in verse 12, that the wicked are always at ease and always increase in riches. And we have little sayings about that, about politicians and about the wealthy and about Hollywood actors that have tons of just unimaginable wealth. And we just kind of, you know, just, we, we have our own little sayings that, that are similar to that. But Asaph is basically saying that their life was so comfortable, so lavish, that they could basically live how they want without respect to God or other people. It's hard to argue with success. So the writer says that the the, the people turn away back to the wicked. They turn away from the Lord and they find no fault in the wicked. It's easy for us to glance towards the halls of power in Washington, D.C. or the studios of extravagance in Hollywood and see this in action today. Everything seems to go great for them. Even when they have a scandal, it doesn't really affect them. They don't seem to have real problems, even though so many stars and politicians engage in grossly immoral behavior. It may lead... God's people to question their faith, to question whether or not it's actually good to follow the Lord. This is often the case for youth, for young people who look around and it's like, oh, I go to church and I don't do the stuff that those students do. And, and then all of a sudden they're, and they're doing it all and they seem, they're, the, they're the, you know, the quarterback of the football team, they're the prom king. They seem to just face no repercussions. Why am I going through all this? Why am I withholding myself? And they, get, and they seem to have everything. And so after describing the wicked, the author uh, turns and, and, and throws a pity party for one. And in verses 13 to 15, because the, he, he, he comes back to it, he says, you know, he's basically saying, is, is godliness worth it? And he says, not really. He says, basically, hey, look, I kept my heart clean. I, my works were innocent. And it was all for nothing. Because you know what I got in return for my labors? I got enduring pain and daily rebukes. That's what I got. Well, the wicked do evil and they get riches and wealth. And in this life, he has known suffering and harassment. And I mean, which of us has never had these types of thoughts? Which of us have never, you know, turned from a particular sin that others indulge in, and yet it seems like they fare better than we do? This guy is really struggling here. And who wouldn't having such thoughts before them? And, and, and I think it just highlights, I mean, it's always when, when we're reminded that this is inspired scripture. Like, does God know us or what? 
Does he know his people? And he inscripturates this struggle and verbalizes it for us, saying it's okay to say this stuff. It's okay to wrestle with these things. This is, this, this is actually, a, in fact, like, I'm going to have Asaph write a song that you sing and worship about it. That's, that's, that's how this struggle is. But he does say that he didn't speak these thoughts to others. He didn't act on them. He showed self-restraint. And what held him back apparently was that he, he says he did not want to betray the children of God. He knew something was off about his heart and his thoughts. He didn't want to start leading a movement. He didn't want to lead others astray, even while he was struggling. Now, I want to be careful with this because he's not saying that if you're struggling with these types of thoughts, think of that, well, keep them inside. Don't talk to anybody about them. Don't, don't do anything with them. That's not what he's saying. You know, don't keep it deep inside and bury them. That's not what he's saying. Uh, if you're wrestling with you know, envy of unbelievers, then you would do well to read this psalm, to pray, to share your struggles with a mature Christian friend or one of the elders. Just don't teach a children's Sunday school about it, right? Like, that's, that's the difference. So, but this also does highlight a valuable principle for us, which is don't act on raw emotion. Don't act on your worst impulses or feelings in a particular moment. Now, this pushes against our culture, which is encourages us to actually act on our emotions constantly and, and, and almost purely because that's being authentic to ourselves. If I feel strongly and emotional about this and I act on it, well, then I'm just being true to myself. But what the Bible says is, look, the heart is deceptive above all else and desperately wicked. So, so we, decisions ought to be made carefully, prayerfully, informed by Scripture and with wise counsel. And the bigger the decision, the more prayer, the more Scripture, the more counsel is necessary. And essentially what Asaph is, uh, is uh, suffering from is a form of spiritual myopia. Myopia is just a fancy word for nearsightedness. It's the inability to see things from a distance, which means your eyes can only focus on what's directly in front of you. I mean, without my glasses, I can see clearly for about, from my thumb to my pinky. That's, a, that's as far as it goes. And then things start to get blurry. All right? I can still make out forms and shapes, but it gets much worse very fast. Okay? And... And so, and so what that means is that without my glasses, without the corrective lenses, I can't trust my eyes. Well, this is what Asaph is experiencing, but on a spiritual level. He can't see beyond his own immediate pain. He can't see beyond just the wicked people who are in front of him. His spiritual vision is nearsighted. And so he can only see the momentary troubles and the superficial assumptions that we make about the wicked. But thankfully, he is about to get some corrective lenses. And so this brings us to the truth about this twisted world that we, in which we live. Everything's about to change for Asaph. His views of things were so inward, uh, so self-focused and, and twisted uh, that, um, that he's actually, now he's going to begin to turn out away from himself. But we need to ask, well, where does the, why does the change occur? Well, he tells us, and he shows us the place that changes our view. He goes somewhere, and it changes how he sees things. 
Because he says he was trying to make sense of all this, and he just couldn't do it. He found it wearying. He had a sense that he was wrong, but how can he be wrong when the evidence was so clearly before his eyes? It seemed like there was no way out until, he says, he went to the sanctuary of God. Asaph went to the tabernacle. He went to the place of God's presence, the place where blood is shed for sin, where worship is offered, where God meets his people. And then he says, there, in that place, he was able to discern the end of the wicked. He was able to see beyond the immediate moment. The corrective lens, so to speak, then, is worship. And it cannot overstate the importance of the disruptive nature of worship. How many times in our own lives have we gotten so deep in our own heads, so lost in our own fears and anxieties, wearied by the evils and sorrows of life, and then we come to worship God and we lift our eyes up, we hear the gospel promises, we're reminded once again that he alone rules over the earth, and, we, and our perspective changes, our perspective shifts, it interrupts our week, a week of sorrows, maybe a week of where we're just wrestling with sin constantly, maybe it's a week of where everything's going great and we're tempted to forget God and our prosperity and we come to worship. Worship is disruptive to sin and lethargy and, uh, and even despair. If we are in lengthy stretches of suffering or struggles against sin, then we definitely need the disruptive nature of worship to bless our souls and to constantly be correcting our vision of the world. When you're low and you're struggling, when you think that godliness isn't worth it anymore, that wickedness might be the way, Asaph says, come and worship. Worship God. Don't neglect it. Don't run from it. We live in a time now where it's very popular, especially amongst younger folks, to talk about deconstructing your faith and kind of breaking it apart into pieces. Sometimes people just mean asking questions. Fine. Fine with asking questions. Other, other people mean just dismantling the thing and just breaking it apart and rejecting it. But, that's not, but that is not the answer. The answer is not to deconstruct your faith. The answer is to come and to worship the Lord. Because in worship, God reveals to us the reality of life. And we see this in verses 18 to 26. And there's two aspects to this. First, he talks about the reality of the wicked and then the reality for God's people. And so first, the reality of the wicked in verses 18 to 20 is fairly short. He spent a long time describing how great it is to be wicked. He spends a very short time describing what the reality of the wicked is because it's pretty short and sweet. He discerned their end. Because he sees that that as strong and happy as the wicked may seem now, that they have actually been set upon a slippery place from which they will fall into ruin and misery forever. He sees that in the judgment of God, the wicked are destroyed in a moment. They're swept away. And if we are going to walk in the path of the wicked, we need to see that if we're going to place our hope in earthly goods and prosperity, then that hope is fragile and will fail us. And so he says that the strength of the wicked is actually like a dream when one awakes. It's an illusion. 
And in one sense, it describes his own experience. He's been awakened as from a dream to see the reality of the world. But it's also like a dream for everyone who hopes in earthly and transitory goods and comforts. One that if they don't wake up before they die, they will be awakened in the judgment. Even the most powerful and successful of the wicked are like ghosts or phantoms when the Lord rouses himself in judgment. And this is the truth, that our only hope and trust and treasure is the Lord himself. Our only inheritance of true value is the one that we have in Jesus. This brings us to the second aspect, which is the reality that is for the people of God. In verses 21 to 26, The author has his vision clarified here, not only about the wicked, but also about his own thoughts and attitudes. He confesses that his soul had become embittered. That word embittered literally means to become leavened or soured. Like leaven in dough, bitterness spreads throughout him, distorting his view of the world and God. You're like, that's a good metaphor for bitterness because it doesn't spread If you wrestle with bitterness, you know how it can just seep into everything if it is not brought into check. He confesses that he was brutish and ignorant, which is kind of actually a fancy way to translate the Hebrew. I like one Hebrew scholar, uh, his translation, he says, I was adult and I knew nothing. That's That's how he translated that Hebrew. All right, I was an idiot. Like, I didn't know anything. You're like, but he's actually says the beginning, he's like, ah, but I, uh, you know, but before he was like, I figured it out, right? The wicked get everything and the righteous get nothing. He was so certain that he knew what was happening. He was a realist. But he says in the end, actually, he was just like a big, dumb animal. I was a beast towards you. But why? You know, wasn't he right about how the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer in an unjust and fallen world? Yeah, I mean, there's truth in that, right? There is truth in that. We do live in a fallen world. But I would submit that the truth of his beastliness lies more in his works-based mentality when he said, essentially, look, I am going to be godly as long as I get the payout at the end. I do good things so that God will give me good things. Because that seems to be what he was mad about. Remember, he said, well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. He saw godliness as a means for gain, like Paul warned about. He could not see that godliness with contentment is actually great gain. He actually sounds a lot like the older brother in the parable of the two sons. Well, I did this, and I did this, and you never gave me a fatted calf, right? Like he gets, he rebukes his father. Because he followed the rules. I did all the things. You can give me what I want. But compare that attitude to what he says in verses 23 to 26. He realizes now that God is always with him. Always holding him up. Guiding him by the hand. And one day we'll receive him in glory. The reality is that God is his portion. God is everything that he has. God is his desire, and there is nothing on earth besides God worthy of desiring, he says. Indeed, he speaks those powerful words in verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is, my, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph's eyes are now open. 
Asaph can really see now. He sees the end of the wicked, and he's able to interpret their momentary prosperity rightly. They are, in fact, doomed. He sees the end of the people of God, which is not suffering but glory. He sees the activity of God presently in his providence and his goodness. And most importantly, he perceives of God himself, recognizing that his greatest joy His greatest good is not merely what God can do for him, but it is God himself. And this brings us to the sum of the matter. Here is the reality of the wicked life, he says. Those who are far from God, those who go about being unfaithful, which is the very nice way to say it, because the word literally means to be a prostitute, to be a harlot, who go around being unfaithful, They will perish and be put to an end. But as for me, he says, it is good to be near God. Notice how he no longer mentions uh, works or deeds or creature comforts that he doesn't have. No, Asaph says he has made the Lord his refuge. And now he will speak, he will share, he will tell the children of God the works of their king. Brothers and sisters, I do not know the sufferings or struggles that you may be dealing with right now. I do not know what temptations may be upon you. I do not know if the envy of the wicked may be gripping your heart. But I can tell you that we have something even better than Asaph had. He was a Levite, and according to the law, the Lord was his portion. He didn't get an inheritance of land like the rest of the Israelites. The Lord said, I will be the portion of the Israelites. And in God's mercy, he was brought to the place where he saw God's goodness and presence to deliver him and preserve him. But Asaph did this through types and shadows, through the tabernacle and the altar, through the blood of lambs and goats and bulls. And yet he still experienced the presence of God to deliver him. But we have Christ. The goodness of God. The mystery of godliness in the flesh. Who has come to redeem our suffering. To forgive our sins. To be with us to the end of the age. And to bring us into glory. We have his word and we have his spirit. And if our father in heaven did not withhold his own son from us. Will he not also with him gladly give us all things? The apostle tells us. And so here is a man tonight coming to us, telling us about a time where he really questioned God's goodness and the point of being godly, of pursuing it. Suffering and sin had twisted up his worldview and made him the victim and God made God negligent at best. But it was worship that brought him to see the truth. That the wicked have this momentary existence and nothing more. And thus they are to be pitied, even in their golden halls. But the people of God have eternal comfort and hope. Our God is near us, our God is our refuge, He is our strength and our portion forever. Indeed, this psalm reads like the hymn that. Uh, that that we just actually just sang at family worship the other night. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to our real temptations and sufferings and pains. That you do not, you may correct us, you may reprove us, you may at times rebuke us, but you do not abandon us to despair. And you do not hate us for when we wrestle with envy of the wicked. And Lord, we pray that whenever we do wrestle with these things, that we would come to worship you with the people of God. That we would go to your word, we would go to prayer, but we would go to worship. Even if that's the last thing we want to do. That we would know this is what our souls need. That we need our eyes to be lifted up to the God God of the hills. To see once again from where our help comes. That we need to have our eyes lifted up and to see our Savior on the cross and even more buried and resurrected and exalted and ascended and sitting on high. That we may be reminded of the promises of the gospel. That we may be able to bear up under the sufferings and burdens that we have upon us. That we may be faithful in our moment today by your Spirit's grace and power. And Father, we pray that you would correct our vision. That we would not envy unbelievers or the wicked. That we would not believe the lies of the devil. The lies of the flesh that tempt us to abandon godliness. But may we look to the one who is godliness in the flesh, our own Savior, Jesus Christ. And by your grace... By his powerful love, may you lead us into greater faithfulness and holiness that we may say with the psalmist that though our flesh and our hearts may fail, that you are the strength of our heart and our portion forever, that we may sing your praises and instruct future generations of your goodness. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.